I invite you to turn in your Bibles, um, if you're using the Bibles in your seats, page 991 to 1 Timothy, chapter 1, 12 through 17. And I remind you, as we come to this time in our service, that we're not simply reading words on a page. This is not a dispatch from a distant land. This is the Word of God, our very present Lord, speaking to us here in this cafeteria today of His good Word. 1 Timothy 1, 12-17. This is God's Word, eternally true. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to You now, called into Your presence. And we thank You for this Word. We pray that by Your Spirit You would move in our hearts now to illumine our hearts to the beauty of Jesus and His love for us. Speak to us in these moments. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. In Christ's name, Amen. So, I want you to imagine a scenario with me. Imagine you're on a hiring committee for a new pastor. I don't know any news. Nate's not leaving. Don't fire Nate. This is completely hypothetical. But imagine you're on a committee to hire a new pastor. You've got a few candidates, but you've got one you're really excited about because he comes with a reputation. He's planted a lot of churches. He's had some great success. He knows Scripture. He cares for people really well. And he's been trained at the most prestigious school that he could find. And you sit down across from him and he hands you his resume and you look down. And a resume usually has education, experience, work experience, expertise, special skills. And you look down and you're expected to see this most prestigious school and his uh, magna cum laude and all this listed. But under education it says, I'm ignorant. And so you think, that seems like a typo. Uh, You look at work experience and it says, I'm really good at persecuting the church. And you look at expertise and he says, I'm the best blasphemer in the world and I excel at unbelief. And you're just completely confused and you look at him and you say, would you have anything else to add? And he says, oh yeah, I am the worst person you've ever met. This is a nightmare scenario for an interview. Um, But that's essentially what we have here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And you have to wonder why. Is Paul, who is writing this letter, is the Apostle Paul just really bad at representing himself? 
Does he need a career coach to help figure out how to write this resume and, and really shine and all his special skills? No, I think that Paul actually has tapped into something central to understanding the love of Jesus and how it applies to our life in the long haul. So we're going to talk about it this morning. We're going to look at this text. But if you want to tune out for the next 45 minutes, I'm not going to speak 45 minutes. But if you want to tune out, here's my one-sentence summary. You can write this down and, and then draw pictures of dogs. Um, but the summary is this. The love of Jesus is so disruptively wonderful. It's so disruptively wonderful that we can take off the resumes that we hide behind and toss them out the window. You don't have to write all of that down. And we can experience the freedom that can only come from His grace. His love is so disruptively wonderful that we can take off the resumes that we hide behind and experience the freedom that can only come from His grace. So we'll look at a few points. And the first one is this, a study in contrast. A study in contrast. It might help us to get a little bit of a background in the text. So the book of 1 Timothy is a letter actually written from the Apostle Paul to his longtime ministry partner and friend, Timothy. Now, Timothy has a long uh, ministry experience himself. And what Paul has done is he's left Timothy in this city called Ephesus because when they went to visit the church there, they found incredible conflict and just chaos in the church. So Paul and Timothy weren't planning to stay in Ephesus long. But Paul's like, well, I've got to go on to this next city, but I'm going to leave Timothy behind to help straighten things out. And there's chaos there. Now, Ephesus, uh, the church there was very prominent. The, ch- the city itself was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, behind Rome itself and Alexandria. And uh, the church there at this point was around 20 years old. So it had a couple of generations of folks come through, or one generation and one coming up. So it had been there a little while. And this is a prominent church. Um, both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John had written letters to there. So the book of Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus, and a portion of the book of Revelation was written to the church at Ephesus. And both of them had also written scripture from there while they were ministering there. Paul had written 1 Corinthians and maybe even Romans from there, and the Apostle John had written 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and maybe even the Gospel of John from there. So this is a pretty central place to the early church. But as I said, Paul and Timothy visited and they found some chaotic division going on there. But it's not from teachers from the outside. You know, the New Testament, most of the issues are people would visit and say, I'm a super apostle, I really know, and they would just cause conflict. The interesting thing about Ephesus, it didn't come from teachers from the outside. It's actually the elders of the various house churches there who have gone sideways and they're starting to lead people into trusting different kinds of things. So it's issues that have risen up from the inside of the church there. So that's the contrast. You have the false teachers in Ephesus who are creating chaos and division. And you have Paul and Timothy. So what do we know about these false teachers on this side? Well, they were modeling and teaching a way of life that is committed to building impressive resumes. Committed to building impressive religious resumes. If you read through the rest of 1 Timothy, you'll see Paul dealing with the issues. In chapter 1, they were claiming to be experts in all things related to God's law. In fact, they saw this as reason to be impressed. Many of them might have been ethnic Jews. And they said, well, God doesn't just give his law to anybody. We must be trustworthy. We must be all right if God has given us his law and entrusted that to us. That's pretty impressive. 
They had a lot of expertise. They claimed to be very knowledgeable about a wide variety of things. They focused on what Paul calls in chapter 1 myths, and in chapter 4 he calls them old wives' tales. And they took great pride in their heritage. They were committed to endless genealogies, as he says in chapter 1. They could trace all the lines as to why they were impressive to their forefathers and foremothers. And they were devoted people. Chapter 4 says that they were, really, they, they were teaching that really following Jesus meant abstaining from certain types of foods. And it even says that they forbade marriage. So they said, if you're really committed to Jesus, you won't get married. And you won't eat this kind of food. You, you'll live this aesthetic life. You'll be like a monk. To put it in our terms, they thought that the way forward in following Jesus and being leaders in his church was building a resume that makes you really impressive. So let's contrast that with what Paul has written about himself in our text. Look at verse 12. Paul says that God has judged him faithful. So this is something that the false teachers in Ephesus would have said about themselves too. But the false teachers would have said they've been judged faithful because of all their knowledge and because of all their devotion to God. Yet Paul says, no, I haven't been judged faithful because of my knowledge. Look at verse 13. He says he was ignorant and he lacked faith. He hasn't been judged faithful because he was especially committed to God. Look again at verse 13. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of all things Jesus. Paul understood that his standing before God could not rest on his own resume. His own resume was a non-starter. If he had any standing before God whatsoever, it had to be on the work of Jesus Christ on his behalf. He could not depend on himself. He had to cast himself on the sure mercy of God who justifies the ungodly, who promises to declare his people righteous in his sight because of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why Paul could say he had been judged faithful, not because he himself was faithful, but because he had been uh, counted in Christ, given the righteousness of Jesus. That and that alone is how God could judge him faithful. Which is why he can say in verse 15, I am the foremost of sinners. Not was, but I am. This is Paul speaking in present tense. I am the foremost of sinners. He can say this because he knows that in a world full of resumes, a world full of building accolades and seeking the praise of men and women, the grace of God disrupts. With the coming of Jesus, this whole idea of being righteous because of our deeds is tossed out of the window. It's thrown away. And in its place, God gives us grace upon grace a better foundation to build our lives. So the contrast could not be more stark. These leaders, these false teachers in Ephesus, they were saying, Jesus, and then, oh no, we really have to build our foundation on how committed we are, how about, how faithful we are, and focus on those things. And Paul says, no, no. And the application for us this morning is this. Our world of resumes will only lead to confusion and disruption. And the kind of transformation that we need to see in our own hearts, the kind of transformation that you guys need to see here in Raleigh, cannot come from our resumes. It has to come from Jesus, and it has to come from Jesus alone. Which leads to my second point, the fallout of our best foot forward. The fallout of our best foot forward. Um, 
You guys know of Chernobyl? It's very popular right now because there's an HBO miniseries about it. Um, but Chernobyl is, uh, is an actual thing that happened. It's not fanciful. 1986, this uh, nuclear plant in the U- what is now the Ukraine, um, one of their cores exploded. It wasn't supposed to happen, but it exploded and it caused um, massive problems. But the interesting th- thing about Chernobyl is when we think of Chernobyl, we think of that explosion. That moment in time when the core failed and and it blew up. But the greatest damage, the actual fallout from Chernobyl, um, was not from the explosion itself. An estimated 54 people died when in 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 the first day, and related to the explosion or or somehow connected to that immediate first event. But the real issues were the long-term issues because out of the explosion. The air was poisoned. The water was poisoned. The land was poisoned. And so where 54 people died in that first day, there's an estimation of hundreds of thousands to millions of people that have been affected in the long term. Women who were pregnant. Cancer numbers are sky high for people that were surrounding Chernobyl. I I saw the the highest number I saw was 3.5 million people who had died and somehow some way connected to the explosion in Chernobyl. The mindset of our world of resumes can have the same effect in the church. When we leave behind the idea that Jesus came into this world to save sinners, among whom I am the worst, it's like a nuclear explosion in the church. In Ephesus, in 1 Timothy, we see the after effects of these false teachers. In chapter 2, Paul deals with it. There's divisions in worship. There's this one-upsmanship going on in the church, even in the midst of their worship services. In chapter 4, we see that the, the teachers are, are, are presenting a Jesus plus. They're telling people to really be committed. You have to abstain from foods and abstain from marriage. It's not a focus on Christ. It's a fallout, a poisonous well of Jesus plus. We see in chapter 5 that so many widows in the community there, had been left behind, had been forgotten. We see gossiping, favoritism. In chapter 6, Paul says we see greed. These are the after effects of the Chernobyl-like explosion of leaving behind Jesus came into this world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. In verse 10, Paul calls these types of things contrary to sound doctrine. Maybe you've heard that term, sound doctrine. Well, that word that's translated sound for us um, can be translated healthy. It's the same root word for our word hygiene, clean, healthy. So not just sound doctrine, but healthy doctrine. And what's the opposite of sound doctrine? Unhealthy doctrine. Poisoned water. The fruit of forgetting that Jesus came into this world to save sinners among whom I am the worst is rotten fruit that causes disease and fallout in the church. This is the very root of all the issues that Paul has sent Timothy to deal with. People in Ephesus had forgotten the wonderfully disruptive love of Jesus. They had gone back to ways of thinking that Jesus came to save them from. And it turned into this Chernobyl-like fallout. But there's good news in this, though. The good news is this. In the same way that forgetting this truth leads to a Chernobyl-like fallout, keeping this truth at the center, the truth that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, 
among whom I am the foremost, keeping this at the center of the way we think about ourselves, our, our, our church, and others, it leads to true flourishing. It's the opposite of poisoned water. It's a well that never runs dry. And it trains us. It's like developing muscle memory to love God and to love others. After all, it's really hard to move on to different ways of thinking when we are focused in every part on realizing that our strength doesn't come to our, from ourselves, that it comes from Jesus, as Paul says in verse 12, that we've received mercy from Jesus not because we were smart enough, we didn't think our way to God, or ambitious enough, we didn't work our way to God, but because of His overflowing grace, as Paul says in verse 14. That Jesus has called, him, called us to Himself not because He was so very impressed with us and needed to have us seated at His table so He could learn from us. But as Paul says in verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. This leads me to my third point. This is easy to say. It is very easy for me to say this this morning. And it is very hard to live out. This is easy to say and hard to live out. This all sounds nice, and it, but it is incredibly easy to forget because we live in a world that screams at us to believe lesser things. It should be a warning to us that this kind of fallout has happened in a place like Ephesus. As we mentioned, they were a church with a very long history of God's grace at work. They had scripture written to them specifically with their names in the letter. And they had scripture written from their city. I don't know about you, but if the Gospel of John had been written in my living room, I, you wouldn't be able to tell me anything. I would talk about it constantly. Like, Have you seen the Gospel that my buddy John wrote in my living room? So if there was going to be a church that got it right there was going to be a church where this did not happen, where people rise up from within the church and lead folks astray, you would think it would be in Ephesus. But we cannot simply assume that because we have a great history of God working in our midst, or because we have a great statement of faith, or whatever it might be, that we can walk forward presuming that we're right, or walk forward leaving Jesus behind. Because we live in a world and we live in the midst of the selfishness of our own hearts. We live in a world that wars against the truth in our passage. The evil one hates when people take seriously that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners among whom I'm the worst. But the source of our strength this morning is the same as Paul's. Christ Jesus is our Lord. He is our Savior. He gives us mercy. He gives us grace overflowing. He gives us faith and love. He displays His patience with us. He gives us eternal life. To apply it to us in this room this morning, this, the story of Calvary Presbyterian Church is a whole lot more than what can be explained by sociological categories or understanding group dynamics. The story of Paul's life and ministry and the story of this church's life and ministry can only be explained by this. God's grace has overflowed to you. Not so that you might be high and lifted up above others, but so that God can demonstrate that grace in you for the benefit of you and the benefit of the world around you. 
You know, I've thought about this very thing a lot in the last few months. I'm a church planter. We are a scratch plant. That means we moved to Dunn with zero people. My church right now is me. I'm the pastor. My wife. My five-month-old son, who really appreciates my leadership. Um, and my mom. So we've added a person since we landed, um, which is explosive growth percentage-wise. Um, But what I do a lot is I invite people to think about being a part of a new church plant. And so I go on a lot of job interviews. Let me be your pastor. Join me in this. And it's tempting, and sometimes I fail at this. It's tempting when I sit across from somebody to give them my resume, to dress me up as impressive, to tell a story, to make it sound like something amazing is about to happen, to tell them I'm ordained in the PCA you should be impressed with that. To tell them about my degrees and my ministry experience. And I could con- try to convince them I, I'm a compelling preacher and that I love people really well. But the first thing that I say, and I really don't say this anywhere in there, you should join our church plant because I am the worst sinner that you have ever met. I am the very worst one. and the worst person you've ever laid eyes on. What if somebody were to ask you, who's out there in the park, why should I come to Calvary Presbyterian Church? What would you say? Don't say it out loud. But what would you say? I'm going to guess, as an outsider who's been a recipient of your welcome and hospitality, you would say we have incredibly kind people who welcome well. We have a great pastor in Nate. We're growing. We're we're, We're renovating our facility We're in a great location in a wonderful city. I love Raleigh, by the way. This would be a wonderful place to come in and grow and to raise a family. Would you say you should come to Calvary Presbyterian Church because we are the worst group of people in Raleigh? We are the very worst group of people in Raleigh. And you should come and see God pouring His grace out on us every day. Now, don't make that your church motto. Maybe. Don't put it on the sign. Or, I don't know, maybe do. You're renovating. Maybe put that on the sign. We're the worst people in Raleigh. Um, But don't forget this. Leaving the central idea that Jesus came into this world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost, leaving that central idea behind, that it's really about Jesus, that he's really committed to showing us grace, and that we don't have anything impressive to bring to the table, that we have Christ and him crucified. That's all we've got. Forgetting these things will just turn our churches into vaguely religious social groups that eventually become sources of conflict and chaos. And they cause more harm than good. Which leads me to my final point. Where does this lead us? Where does this lead us? What do we do with this? Now, what we could do with this, we could hear this this morning, feel a lot of guilt and feel very judged and walk out of here and uh, fuel our car on shame. But fueling our car on shame is like putting diesel into a regular unleaded engine. It's going to run a little bit. That thing's going to sputter and stall out on the side of the road and ruin the entire engine. No, we walk forward from this message in joy. In joy. Not fear of what we could become if we get off track. It's joy. Knowing that we've been united to Jesus and that Jesus Christ is committed, 100% committed to showing you His kindness and grace today tomorrow, for the rest of your life, 
for eternity. This is what Jesus Christ has committed himself. He could do a billion things in this universe. He came into this world to save sinners. He could have become an astronaut and explored all the grand uh, depths of space and all the planets that he's created and, and seen them all. And, and, but he came here to become one of us, to save us. The truth of Jesus' redemption and what this means is stronger than our sin. It's stronger than our fear. The power of His grace has broken the power of sin that holds us bound. And now the strength that He gives and the mercy that He gives are just as much ours as the sin that is ours. So we can own that grace. We can hold on to it as tightly as we understand our sin to belong to us. And that's our real resume. The righteousness of Jesus is ours. That's our real resume. The evidence, that, the evidence is that He is transforming us is ours. This is not only our best foot forward, but this is the ground beneath our every step forward. So where does this best foot forward take us? Where does it lead us? It leads us to worship. Look at verse 17. After Paul has written these things about himself... To Timothy, he almost seems to break out into praise, almost seems unable to contain himself. He says in verse 17, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul breaks into this praise because he understands that this basic confession, that Jesus came into this world to save sinners, is beyond his comprehension. We cannot account for it. Staring into the face of it, we cannot explain it. We can only wonder. We can only come to this truth, to this mystery of the gospel and be in awe. That's the only appropriate response. God, compelled by no other reason than His own love for you, has moved, quite literally, moved heaven and earth to rescue you from the power of the sin that held you bound. And in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, our sins are dealt with for good. There's a period on the end of that sentence. It is finished. So that we might receive not only forgiveness for our sins, but we receive the very righteousness of Jesus. We are forever connected to Him, forever united to Him. And nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is not just a neat religious thing for us to do. It's our very present Lord feeding us. It's Him nourishing our souls as we commune with Him. And He invites us to this table. He gives us Himself and gives us one another, assuring us of His commitment to give us His grace. So as we come to this table, we do not come as those who have earned a seat there. We come as those who know that Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And I'm the very worst but it's for this reason that we have received mercy. And it's for this reason that you have received mercy, that in you, in Calvary Presbyterian Church, as the worst sinners in Raleigh, Jesus Christ will display His perfect patience as an example to those who will believe in Him for eternal life. Let us allow these truths to lead us by His Holy Spirit into that same kind of praise that Paul expresses in verse 17. As we partake in the supper together, as we sing His praise at the close of the service, let us be in awe of this grace. Let us wonder that it came to us at all. 
Let us be amazed at the depths of his love for us and sing as those who have been freed from the world of resumes, as those who have experienced the disruptively wonderful love of Jesus. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you not as people who have earned a hearing, not as people who have anything to bring to the table whatsoever. But we come to you and we come to this table as people who can only boast of Christ and his righteousness on, on our behalf. But we boast this in boldness because you have told us that we can. You have set your love on us from eternity past. And you have worked out our life to show us that love. And so we grasp a hold of that righteousness of Jesus and we say this is ours because we are united to Him. And we thank You for it. Thank You that You came into this world, Lord Christ, to save sinners. Thank You that You are transforming us by Your grace. Teach us to walk in this path our whole life long. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.